This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the FinTech Takes podcast. My name is Alex Johnson, and today I have a very special episode to bring you, a return special guest, a junkie for all things FinTech, and the chief investment officer at QED, Frank Rotman. Frank, thanks so much for coming back. Well, happy to be back. Oh, no, this is going to be amazing. So I wanted to have you on for a couple of distinct reasons. One is that it is, you know, time to start thinking about 2024, obviously heading into a new year. Everyone else wants to do predictions. I think you and I have some bones to pick about the way most predictions are done. And so I wanted to specifically have a a slightly different conversation about predictions for the future. But before we get there, there's a whole other ball of yarn that I want to spend some time untangling with you. Um, For folks who don't know, Obviously, I write about lending a lot. I come from a lending background. I used to work at FICO. So um, my brain is sort of wired to think of everything in terms of like positive and negative selection and decision rules. It's just sort of how I think about the world. And you're not totally dissimilar, Frank, in that for folks who don't know, your background is pretty interesting. Would you mind just giving like the quick 30 seconds on your background, in particular, your time uh, in lending? Yeah, so... If we really go back in the Wayback Machine, I've been uh, in and around <laughs> financial services and fintech for 30 years. And the first part of my professional career was helping to build what became Capital One. And in that part of my journey, I had a variety of roles at the company. It was arguably one of the first fintechs and a fintech of the 1990s. And a lot of what made Capital One special was underwriting you know, really innovating in credit segment and underwriting. And, you know, I was the first chief credit officer of Capital One before there even was an official title for the job and we didn't know what it was. Managed all of the data analysts at the time, which today, you know, you would call either statisticians or, you know, a lot of the people manipulating the models and making sure that, you know, you you have the right risk predictions in place. And, you know, during my time frame there, spent a lot of time reinventing the frameworks for how underwriting actually is done. You know, so name an asset class, I've probably touched it or underwritten it or managed a business in the space. Yep. Because I've also played vertical roles of managing P&Ls holistically. So again, if you name an asset class, I've probably touched it at some point or another, all the way in the weeds of crafting the credit policy and the products and managing the P&L. As I have said before, and I like to say a lot, lending is a learning business. And so you've had ample opportunity to learn over the years. And the reason I wanted to talk about lending and credit underwriting specifically is it does come up a lot uh, in the stuff that I cover. I recently wrote a piece actually that talked a little bit about ability to pay. And so I wanted to parse that a little bit with you, Frank. I mean, one of the very simple frameworks that is used a lot when talking about credit underwriting, and it's overly simplified, is that it's basically made up of two pieces, looking at willingness to pay and looking at ability to pay. And so in this very simplified framework, willingness to pay is largely a measure of behavior and how people manage financial obligations. And ability to pay is more about their capacity and their situation and circumstance. And do they have enough income to cover the debts that they've taken on, including this one that you may be underwriting them for? 
Now, one of the reasons I find this framework really interesting is that a lot of folks, including me, candidly, often, will sometimes get a little overly reductive in their thinking about credit underwriting as just willingness to pay and ability to pay and thinking them as two sort of distinct buckets. And what that leads, I think, people to do is make some sort of strange assumptions or maybe propose some sort of overly simplistic solutions. So to use one example, as you probably know, I <laughs> I write more about credit building products than I probably should. It's sort of an obsession for me at this point. And credit building is one of those topics that is very frustrating for obvious and I think very valid reasons. It's weird to not have a credit score and to get denied because you don't have a credit score, but not being able to build a credit score because you've never had credit. So this classic catch-22 that exists in lending is a point of friction for everyone that goes through that. And so occasionally, whether it's consumer advocates or fintech entrepreneurs who maybe don't have as much of a background in lending, there'll be sort of an overly simplistic thought, which is, well, why don't we just look at someone's ability to pay? And if they make enough money and we feel comfortable with that, then we should be willing to underwrite them for this loan. And we shouldn't worry too much about the fact that they have no uh, established credit history and we don't really know much about their, you know, performance over time. And, you know, maybe honestly, like who needs the FICO score at all? And I was at FICO for years and we definitely heard lots of different strains of that idea that like the FICO score is sort of antiquated or unfair needs to be replaced. And this misses a lot of nuance. And Mr. Rodman, you specialize in adding nuance to topics. Oh, boy. (laughs) I, I know. I know. We're like in class now. So please, I guess to start with, can you just sort of share your perspective on What do we miss when we try to simplify credit underwriting down to willingness to pay and ability to pay? Yeah, so I think this starts with an understanding of what lending actually is. And it's a very basic thing, right? At its core, lending is about giving money to someone today in exchange for a distribution of payments in the future. Not, you know, an an exact schedule of payments, but a distribution of payments in the future that a volatility and variability associated with it, right? So you're trading cash today for a distribution of potential payments coming in the future. So there's no certainty associated with lending. People think if you have the ability to pay, you can afford the loan. Right. But the reality is, you know, you're trading cash today for a distribution of payments in the future, right? And that distribution is affected by lots of things. You know, if you think about ability and willingness to pay, those are two of the dimensions. The other two dimensions that I tend to think of and a lot of the policies that, you know, I've helped, uh, you know, write over the, the many, many decades, I guess, that I've been doing this. It's ability, willingness, stability, and also collateral. So thinking about all of these dimensions and saying, why do they matter? Right. I think it's important to really true back to first principles. So what if someone has the ability to pay? today, but they decide they don't want to pay you back, right? Is this a good customer? Or if they have a history of deciding that when they take on debt obligations, they don't want to pay someone back, right? Well, that might not be a good customer to underwrite. What if that customer has the ability to pay today, but they work in an industry going through massive job cuts? Is that a good customer? Like, would you take your money and lend it to them if you knew that they were in an industry that was shrinking and, you know, job loss was a near certainty? Well, that would be difficult. You know, what if someone had the ability to pay today, but if they lost their job, they don't have any cash cushion or collateral that they could use to hold them over until they found a new job? Is that a good customer? 
right? So all of these things go into this distribution of payments, right? The economy matters, the job that they're in matters, the cushion that they have in case something goes wrong matters. So just looking at ability to pay right now in this moment is a very difficult and reductive way of actually thinking about what this distribution of payments coming in the future is going to look like. So, you know, we can talk about cash flow underwriting. We can talk about how you break this, you know, circular loop, you know, think of it as a doom loop around people who don't have credit, not able to get credit. Therefore, they can't get credit and therefore they can't build their credit history. Like that is a real thing. But if you true back to what underwriting is about, it's actually important to have a very deep understanding of, you know, the consumer or the small business or the enterprise, depending on who you're lending to, if you're going to make a correct underwriting decision. I think one thing you hit on there that I just want to underline a little bit is I think some people are very surprised when they see the five factors that primarily drive your FICO score, just as an example. And they notice that age of your oldest trade line is like one of the factors that is surprisingly heavily weighted when FICO gives that sort of genericized explanation of how their score works. And I think it's not actually that surprising if you put it in the context of what you just said, which is you have these different dimensions, but the sort of characteristic that almost all of those dimensions have is they have very little to do with what is happening right now today in this moment and so much to do with behavior over time and a projection of behavior and circumstance in the future. And so when we talk about those different like capacities, and this is kind of what I wanted to segue into, you know, there's this like challenge, I think, that a lot of lenders have. And Capital One is very, very famous for being incredibly sophisticated at underwriting relative to its peers in the market at the time, I think still relative to a lot of its peers today. But like, you know, having worked with a lot of banks around lending and credit underwriting, I've always been sort of struck by how relatively unsophisticated it is. Now, I don't mean that to mean like truly unsophisticated. They don't know what they're doing. Obviously, they do. And there's a bit of an art and there's scar tissue and things they've learned along the way. But there is sort of this reliance sometimes on sort of an overly simplistic view of some of those different dimensions that you mentioned. And I like a classic example that I always think about is even when you look at someone's FICO score, which is a useful proxy for a whole bunch of things. Someone can have a FICO score that's lower than what you would ordinarily approve. But if you sort of parse out what happened across all of the different dimensions that you just talked about, you might find that they actually have a pretty long history of willingness to pay. So do they honor their obligations or do they walk away from them? They have a pretty long history of stability and working in jobs that are stable and you know, working in an environment and living their lives in a way where there's stability of income and stability of finance. And they have you know ample collateral, but there was some disruption to what happened in their lives. It could be a medical thing, could be sort of really unexpected job loss that's not predictive of something in the future. And it has this sort of kind of temporarily like tanking effect on their ability to access credit. And like, as an example, that's always struck me as one where if you were a little bit more nuanced in the way that you parsed out consumers' credit histories, it's not like you couldn't go in and like find that out and discover some of these sort of diamonds in the rough. But a lot of lenders don't do that. What's your sort of read on like just general level of sophistication and lending and, and how most banks sort of approach doing that? So I think, again, if we true back to first principles, which those people who know me and follow me know that that's kind of how I think about everything, you have to understand that the Bureau is an incredible 
thing. It's actually a truth file. Yes. And it's a truth file for the liability side of a consumer's balance sheet, as well as their repayment history. Right? That's what it is. It's missing lots of things, but it is the truth file as close as you can get to it. It has problems. It has mistakes. There are errors. I, I mean, we've all heard the criticism. Yeah, yeah. But it's very, very powerful in that it basically is as close to a source of truth that a lender can go to that aggregates all of your debt obligations and your history of repayment of those debt obligations over, you know, a long period of time. And because of that, if you talk about a crutch in the banking industry, it's so powerful that when you start to look for how you add things to it, you realize that there aren't other truth files that have the same coverage, the same quality that the bureaus do. So for all the criticism that the bureaus get, they're actually pretty damn good and pretty predictable. So building on top of them, you can think about it as infrastructure, right? It is a data infrastructure that has a source of data that you know you can go to. It has repeatability with it. It has longitude of, you know, the data that you need. And it's actually, if you look at loss outcomes and if you look at consumers and the inputs, you actually can build pretty damn good models if all you used was the liability side of the balance sheet using bureau data. So when you talk about adding other data, there's a lot of really interesting sources of signal. You know, so we actually had invested in a company called L2C many, many years ago that eventually well, I know yeah, them. sold to TransUnion. Yeah. And it was a CRA that basically had non-credit bureau data that could be used for approved decline and pricing decisions, right? So incremental data to the bureaus that would help you build better underwriting models, if you want to yep. think about it simplistically. And there are some interesting things in their data sets. They had things like, have you ever bounced a check? Now, again, if you think about the things we've talked about in predicting you know, someone's performance, like if you've ever bounced a check, do you think that that should be correlated or would be correlated with credit risk? Well, that tells yeah. you about either stability or collateral, right? It means that their bank account is probably running very low with at least some frequency if they're bouncing checks. So data like that is great, but their coverage level was very low. So, you know, getting this data and figuring out how to use this data is hard. You know, if you think about other data sources that are fairly complete, you have things like the Bureau of Labor Statistics that talk about, you know, longitudinal data about different professions. And in fact, back in the Capital One days, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get occupation information baked into the models because you think about stability of income, you know, stability of the cash flow of a consumer. Very, very important to understand the profession there. And it ends up the data is incredibly valuable at creating more signal. Right. So like plumbers, as an example, might be one that like don't jump off the page from a like raw income or, you know, oh, my gosh, they've handled like a ton of different types of credit obligation, but really stable job that wherever you live, people need plumbers. Yeah. So, I mean, if you really look at the data, it's a treasure trove of information, but we'll get to why it's not used in credit underwriting yeah. in a second. But the Bureau of Labor Statistic has 867 detailed occupations. They take those and they kind of collapse them into just under 100 minor groups. And then they collapse that into 23 major groups, right? And you can imagine that when you get this density of these different, like very specific occupations and you collapse it down to these, these 23 occupations, there is a high likelihood that those occupations form patterns that you could use to actually underwrite consumers. So if you think about nurses and teachers, 
right? The unemployment rate is near zero. Basically, if you are a talented, I won't even say talented, if you are a certified nurse, licensed, or yeah, yeah. A <laughs> right. certified and licensed teacher, like you can be employed if you want to be employed. You know, basically the only way to get fired from being a teacher is if you show up to work naked. And even then, maybe you wouldn't right. get fired. You'd probably get passed right, to another right. school first, you know, so. So great credit risk. Great yeah. credit risk. And if you actually look mm -hmm. and take that data and match it with credit bureau data, like it actually shows that it is supplemental. It is incremental information in the models and teachers by and large and nurses by and large would outperform their FICO scores. Manual labor is the opposite which there's a lot of volatility in a lot of the professions. Plumbers happen to be a stable, you know, profession, but there are a lot of other manual labor professions that are less stable. So you can imagine that using the 10-year unemployment rates by profession and understand which professions are going to be growing and which professions are going to be shrinking, it would be incremental. So there are sources of data that actually could be quite complementary to bureau data, but they run into something called Reg B issues. Now, I don't know if you want to explain or I should explain what Reg B is, but you know, it is the bane of existence of a data scientist that's trying to extract the maximum amount of signal from all of the data to build risk predictions. Yeah, no, I mean, so let's go there because I think that's really worth kind of breaking down. And I've written about various parts of this in the newsletter. So folks who read probably have come up to speed a little bit on it, but just to give the simple explanation and jump in if I miss anything here, but Reg B is the implementing regulation for the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, uh, ECOA. And essentially what ECOA set out to do, which is a very noble and laudable goal and something that is, I think, societally important, is to eliminate or at least reduce discrimination in lending. And so among its sort of many provisions and requirements, one of the things that it does is it essentially restricts the type of data, practically speaking, that you can use to underwrite consumers if they happen to fall in or that it can be correlated with a particular protected class under ECOA, right? And examples of protected classes are gender, race, national origin. Um, another one actually is uh, age, but it's consumers over a particular age. And so there are these protected classes under ECOA where essentially the goal is we don't want you to discriminate against these consumers from a lending perspective. But from an implementing regulation perspective, tends to be very restrictive in terms of the types of data or the approaches you can take to underwriting if it has a disparate impact on one of those protected classes. What did I miss there, Frank? I, I think that is a, a very good explanation, but I think there's a nuance here that, you know, the audience might not understand. And unless you've been in lending, you don't appreciate the impact of this. But Reg B outlines that it's not only illegal for the disparate treatment of application uh, of applicants. So in other words, you couldn't use data directly, collect data and use data directly that gives you information about a protected class, about them being a protected class. So you can't use race, you can't use religion, you can't use age. There are a bunch of things that you can't use, you know, directly in your models. The problem is Reg B also outlines that one of the goals is the prevention of disparate impact. Now, disparate impact means regardless of whether you use data directly in your models, if the outcome of the model 
is that one population, a protected class, ends up with lower approval rates or differential pricing as a result of the models, then your model is deemed to have bias against the protected classes and is in violation of Reg B. So it's not just about using the data. It's about using any data that's correlated with the protected classes. Now, the problem is for however noble, you know, the goals of Reg B are, and I actually do think that there is a long history that leads up to why Reg B was put in place and was very justified. For sure. But the protected classes, by and large, not all of them, but as a class, have higher risk than the non-protected classes. So if your goal is to actually extract maximum signal and the protected classes have higher risk, the better you, job you do in your models, the closer you are to being in violation of Reg B. If you had a perfect zero one model, so I mean, the goal of a data scientist would be give me the inputs and with perfection, I will tell you who is going to charge off and who isn't going to charge off. If you had a perfect zero one model, you'd be in a violation of Reg B. So as your models get better, you get closer and closer and closer to violating Reg B. And in fact, if you start using certain types of information like the Bureau of Labor Statistics occupation codes, there are occupations that correlate with protected classes, right? Teachers, as an example, there are more women than men in the teaching profession. I'm not allowed to use gender, but if I use the fact that you are a teacher, I am correlating with the fact that, you know, it, they happen to have more women in the profession. Now, that happens to be a profession that performs better than your FICO score. So you could give them better pricing and you could approve more teachers. You can't because if you give them better pricing, definitionally, it means that another class, i.e. Uh, manual labor, if I use occupation as an example, ends up with worse pricing. And in manual labor, there are certain protected classes that have higher risk. So it's a very, very difficult dance and very frustrating. And this is why you know, lending as a highly regulated industry is one that outsiders that have never touched it, they get wrong. So if you take a, a Google data scientist or someone who's, you know, been building products at Google for years and they go, you know what, I'm going to become the founder of a lending startup because I think that we can just do a better job underwriting than everyone else out there by extracting more signal. And sure. we think we can hire like the world's best data analysts and use AI in order to predict blah, 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 blah. And this is a this is a thing that happens I, like clockwork every like three years. There's like or more frequently, like I see this all the time. People are like, well, I don't know what banks are doing. We can do a better job of this without understanding all this nuance you just explained. Yeah. And it's really hard because as an example, you know, on my, my watch at Capital One, we built a lot of uh, incremental risk signal and predictive power, sure. you know, by using things like occupation. And then the more time we spent with the regulators, the more uncomfortable the regulators got. And we eventually had to pull that data out of the models. We did, we had to make the models worse in order to satisfy Reg B. So it's a very complicated thing about why are banks lazy, you know, which I don't think banks are lazy. I think that they're using this magnificent truth file called, you know, the Bureau, which, you know, maps to the liability side of consumers' balance sheets and their history of repayment. And it can get you most of the way there to a conforming model that passes regulatory scrutiny. You know, you add income to it 
and you do a few calculations around it and you get even more of the vast majority of the value that you can get while still being compliant. And at some point, there are all of these data sets that are proving to be extraordinarily valuable. And it's just really hard work to figure out how you bake them into the models in a compliant form. Now, it, it's not to say it can't be done. It's just really hard. And, you know, by and large, you're risking like finding the marginal customer that you could treat a little bit more fairly for potentially breaking into a world where the regulators are uncomfortable. It's a very bad trade. Very bad trade. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Really quickly, let me ask if you could just like wave a magic wand. This is one of my favorite questions because we can just set aside all constraints for the moment. And you could alter the implementing regulation for ECOA to try to preserve the spirit of the law, but adjust to the way that it is implemented. What would you change to sort of maximize accurate pricing of risk? Because I think that that's, I mean, just as like a, a social goal, I don't think it's at all a bad thing to say, you know, we want to price risk as fairly as we possibly can. And that is something that I think lenders and consumers are generally aligned on is the idea that like, you need to price risk as accurately as you can. Obviously, discrimination is bad. And we didn't touch on one other thing that happened between the 1970s and now, but the adoption of automated decisioning, where it's not a human being getting involved in the process, that has probably had more to do with scrubbing and discrimination out of the process as anything, because human beings are terrifically biased and it's really hard to disentangle that part of it. But setting that part aside, how might you sort of think about adjusting rugby if you could? So again, if I were to, you know, be king for a day and figure out how to fix this, I think it would start with the purity of models, right? So extract as much information as you can out of the models. I think it's fine to not collect the information and use directly in decisioning, right? So I, I don't think there's a world where you use race or religion or, you know, a lot of these these no, variables no. in the actual approved decline in pricing decision. But I think you extract value in the models using, you know, good sources of data that are proven to be reliable and accurate. And, you know, the outcomes will be the outcomes. And if you really care about making sure that, you know, certain classes within society can catch up in terms of the approval rates or catch up in terms of the pricing, I think that there can be policies overlaid on top of it the same way that, you know, the government has the SBA, which is not a yeah. lending program. It is an insurance program for lenders to make it comfortable lending to businesses that otherwise would not be approved and would not have access to capital, right? So I think that there's an overlay that makes a lot more sense than actually baking it right into, you know, the disparate impact. So I would keep disparate treatment. I would not keep disparate impact. And I would probably, you know, create the, the I, I would push the social goals, you know, into something like an SBA program that, can almost guarantee some portion of the loan or protected yep. class individuals in order to incent banks to make rational decisions while still extending more credit. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I agree with that. And I think, you know, I mean, the idea of, from more of a social goal perspective, subsidizing that, like, I think the SBA is great. And I think there are, I wrote about this in a piece recently, which I want to talk to you about actually, but like the idea of lending as a social good and a way to drive 
the creation of wealth and helping people sort of move up the economic ladder. Like, I think that is a very important component to all of this. But I do agree that separating that subsidizing that goal and driving that goal from the pricing of risk, that makes a lot of sense to me. The only other thing I would add to what you said, I'd be curious to your reactions really quickly to this is another thing I see come up a lot in the world of sort of underwriting and, you know, people talk about it like big data is the use of alternative data that is more in the, the classification of like big data, where you can look at it, you can run the numbers, you can build a model and you can say, you know, this random piece of data that we've collected about this individual based on how they use social media, for example, happens to correlate with an increase in risk. And so if we use this variable, we can screen that out. And to me, there is sort of a fundamental difference between sort of not intuitive data that might still also be correlated versus intuitive data that is correlated. And I think where this tends to, where the rubber meets the road with this particular thing is another implementing regulation in this space is coming from the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And one of the things that the FCRA, (laughs) yeah, is we are required to tell consumers why they're being declined. And part of that was uh, hearkening back to discrimination in terms of, you know, if you're declining uh, an applicant because they're black, like you need to state a reason. And that was sort of intended as a way to kind of get on paper, like what is the reason you're saying versus the reason that we know is actually driving this. But the other part of it, and that you can go back and read the original like congressional testimony around FCRA, was they wanted to help consumers get more educated about what they could do to improve their credit worthiness and their chances of getting credit. And I've always kind of liked that as a part of adverse action. And so like, what's your adverse reaction, adverse action? I'm smiling because this dates me, but I remember when (laughs) adverse action was first implemented. I was at Capital One at the time and models had rolled out, but we had to be in compliance by basically, originally it was if a customer requested it, you had to be able to tell them what the reasons were for declining. Eventually, you know, this changed and rolled out so that if you got declined, you automatically got an adverse action notice that that basically would give you the reasons. And I remember having to literally manually go in and look at the scores and the weights and, you know, for each person who was declined when a customer service request came in. And I had many uh, late nights for people who didn't think Capital One was a startup, like it was a startup. I had many late nights literally sitting there from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. manually you know, searching person by person and coming up with the reasons based on looking at the manual, the, uh, uh, you know, the models manually and actually typing the letters and folding them and sending them out. So, I mean, it, it was <laughs> a very manual process at the time. But the yeah. original goal, to your point, is very valid. The goal was to say, these are the reasons why you were declined. And if you fix these reasons, you would have a higher likelihood of being approved. And it was a way of educating consumers saying, look, you know, work on these things, come back to us. And if they improve or if the data is wrong, right, that was the other use of adverse action. That was the other part, right? If you end up telling somebody something and they say, no, that's actually not accurate. It led to them looking at their bureau and seeing if there was a mistake at the bureau. And then if it was corrected, you actually had an obligation to rerun the application to see if they would be approved. So I, I understand the whole purpose behind this, the explainability of the models, both internally as well as to, you know, the consumer being affected. Very important. 
The other thing that's good about explainability is that you understand how gameable, you know, the model actually is. That's right. Because like if I tell you, Frank, that because you type in all caps when you do your unhinged Twitter rants, that's why we declined you because it's correlated with you being a higher risk. Step one is stop typing in all capital letters. And, you know, the goal of a robust credit model, not just a predictive credit model, but a robust one is that it's ungameable. You know, so psychographics where you answer questions to questionnaires, like you have to ask yourself, how gameable actually is this? You know? Yeah. Yeah. What, what you want is you want someone going like, oh, I'm going to get Capital One. I'm going to get them. I'm going to go into a profession that's low risk and I'm going to pay all my bills on time <laughs> and I'm going to go back and I'm going to show them. And Capital One gets you back and they're like, great, come on in. So like, that's what you want people gaming. But right? for instance, right now, there's like a trend on social media, you know, with I think TikTok leading the charge where there are people teaching other people how to have fake rent applications and you know, end up totally. taking apartments and then knowing that they can't get kicked out and then, you know, squatting for a year before they end up being evicted and they live rent free for a year. Like it's a gameable. Yeah, we, we've democratized gaming the system, I think. is what So you're saying. you have to be very careful, especially when you're talking about very large lending obligations. Right. You know, so we haven't really talked about this very much, but lending is very different for, you know, three hundred dollars that needs to be repaid in a month you know, versus a $500,000 mortgage that's going to be repaid over a 30-year period, right? These are not the same thing, right? The amount of data that you need, the predictive power of the models, the gameability of them, like there are all sorts of things that matter, you know? So do you think the stability of your profession matters for a 30-day loan as much as it matters for a 30-year mortgage? Like, again, those aren't the same thing. Totally. So, you know, part of the answer to the case about building credit is like, don't expect to be able to jump into, you know, higher dollar amount, longer duration products before you build your credit history. And there's a reason for that. You know, the longitudinal data, your history of repayment actually matters more and more and more as you start taking on larger obligations for longer periods of time. Right. And the models reflect that with the exception of, you know, mortgages to a certain extent where there are programs designed to get people into the mortgages, which really is a government subsidy and overlay. Yeah. And that, that goes back to what you were saying about mortgage, I think, is a really good example, actually. And I've written about this in my newsletter before, but like the American mortgage is sort of a rather unique marvel in the world of financial engineering. Yeah, take away the rather it is it is unique. It's amazing. Yeah. And you go to any other country and you look at how they do mortgages and it's not anywhere close. But we've always had this obsession in the U.S., not totally outside the realm of what's reasonable, that we want everyone to be homeowners. And, you know, you can quibble with that goal, but like that's baked into the DNA. Like Thomas Jefferson was writing about that 200 years ago. And like what we've done is we've really made some very interesting trade offs with that product creating a robust secondary market, creating these programs and these government agencies to, you know, facilitate a very liquid market. But going back to your point about like a 30-year mortgage is just a different thing to underwrite, that is absolutely true. And one of the ways you know that that's true is if you've ever looked at like verified income data or verified employment data, where it's not just, oh, we're going to estimate your income or we're going to take your word for it on your application, like we're going to go get your pay stubs, we're going to have someone call your employer, we're going to verify this. 
That is a very robust market that exists almost entirely just around mortgage. And there are mortgage lenders that spend $60 a poll to verify your application from an employment and income perspective, where that same data would only be, I don't know, 60 cents that you would pay for if you were getting it to underwrite someone for a credit card or an auto loan. So definitely speaks to the differing importance of different elements or different dimensions when you're underwriting different products. That's right. And uh, that data, by the way, it's used widely in the mortgage industry. It's also used in the rental market, right, for landlords That's you know, right. underwriting tenants. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that actually is an interesting segue to one other area I wanted to ask you about. And you you brought this up before briefly, but I'd, I'd love to kind of pick your brain on this subject. Cash flow underwriting and the, uh, I guess you could say, building a truth file for the other side of the balance sheet in terms of looking at assets and not just liabilities I don't know. I mean, cash flow underwriting is one of those things that I think is a very cool innovation. I think that it is enabled by an infrastructure that we've spent the last, what, 10, 20 years building, an infrastructure that's going to be more formalized once we have 1033, hopefully implemented in a way that makes sense. But it also is sometimes talked about as like a panacea to every problem that we have in lending or that fintechs could potentially solve using this new solution, which it's also not that. So can you sort of demystify cash flow underwriting for us a bit? What what can it do and what can it not do? So cash flow underwriting is a very interesting innovation. The ability to, in an automated fashion, connect to someone's core account, you know, that controls money in and money out, you know, for a household is an incredible source of information that tells you about how they're living their lives. And depending on how far back you can go, it tells you about how they were living their life right? And the stability of living your life. So thing number one is you have to ask how far back does this data actually go, right? So again, if I want to make a 30-year mortgage decision, looking at one statement, you know, one month's worth of cash flow, you know, might not be enough to actually tell me whether that person is going to be able to withstand the ups and the downs of, you know, various economies. Well, and to that point, I if I'm remembering appropriately from the 300-page proposed rules for open banking in the U.S., I think what they landed on as an initial idea was 12 months of history, which might be useful for some, but again, for mortgage, maybe not. Yeah, and again, it's a very interesting data set because what it does is it helps a lender understand how close to technical insolvency a consumer is. And and it's not just consumers. I mean, small businesses. Sure, yeah. You know, I mean... If you think about small business underwriting and even commercial underwriting, spreading cash flows is how they actually, you know, uh, it's the primary way of, of underwriting a small business. You would take a small business bank account, you would spread cash flows, you would see their cash in, cash out. You know, it is a better source of truth than their tax return. Yeah. Right? Because for a small business, every small business owner has an accountant whose job it is to minimize the taxes that they pay, which means their goal is to make the business look as unhealthy as possible, right? So the job of the accountant is to make the tax return look like it's an unhealthy business, but (laughs) the actual source of truth, which is the cash in cash out of their core bank account tells you about the stability of the business. So it's actually a better truth file than for instance, the tax return. Yeah. For consumers though, it's a very difficult, you know, set of data to use or a data set to use when looking at medium to long-term loans, right? You know, you could think about the different situations that a typical consumer in today's market goes through, and you could find flaws in cash flow underwriting 
that you could drive a truck through. You know, so for instance, how many people in the country today are 1099 income, right? Versus W-2 income. And if that income has a lot of variability associated with it, yeah. Right. You have to ask yourself in the data set, in the number of months that you're pulling this cash flow data, do you have a situation of stress? And then how did the person behave when under stress? And it's not totally dissimilar in like a small business context to like if you only got their sales receipt or their income bank data from, you know, like December and November and January, like seasonality is sort of the equivalent to that in the business context, right? Like you need a a fuller picture to really understand. Yeah. I mean, someone might, you know, have a day job and, you know, they work a certain number of shifts and then at night they're working at Uber and, you know, they bring in some more income through that. But the variability and volatility associated with this type of a consumer requires a lot of data to understand, are they going to be able to keep up that lifestyle? For an extended period of time, like, is this a stable way of living their lives? And it could be that some of the data shows that they were working extra shifts and therefore they were able to pay their bills. And as soon as that shift work goes away, the income disappears and therefore they shift into technically insolvency, technical insolvency. You know, the same thing with these, the 1099 gig worker, you know, do they have health insurance? Right. You know, what happens if they get sick and they can't work shifts? In that month, is their income? What if they take vacation, right? Like, have they saved enough to be able to pay their debt obligations when they're going to be short income because they take a week off and they go somewhere, right? So you really need enough, you know, periods of change, right? To reflect how people really live their lives. Not just today, not just one statement of data, not just what's in my bank account now, but how do I deal with the ups and the downs of just living life? And, you know, cash flow underwriting data misses a lot of that. The other thing that's really important is that cycles, they change, right? I mean, cyclical economy, you know, happens. It just, there's natural cyclicality to the economy, right? And it could be that we have seven years of a very good economy and then you have two years of a very bad economy. And if you're only looking at cash flow data, you know, during a, a good period, that might be very different than what happens to that same consumer during a bad period. And that's why like the credit history and the longitudinal data and really understanding how they perform through cycles is very important. And when you talk about age of oldest trade on the bureau matters. Totally. Well, part of it is reflecting that you've been through economic cycles. And if you've been able yeah. to survive that, you've done well. You know, so I mean, the, the big aha, which is really a no duh, if you want to think about it during the 2008 global financial crisis is that the models leading up to that within a lot of banks were trained on a very good economic period. And if they weren't trained well, they ignored things like DTI, which is your debt to income ratio, because the models would show if you trained it over a good economic period that the debt to income ratio doesn't really matter that much. But guess what happens when the economy turns? DTI doesn't matter until it's the only thing that matters. You know, it basically tells you who is on edge and is likely to go over the edge, over the cliff and be in trouble if the economy turns. So like building robust credit models, you know, requires more than just simple analytic calculations. It's about robust data that has similar duration in terms of its predictive power 
to the cash flow that you are expecting back in from the consumer or the small business, the the commercial entity, right? So again, I think there are a lot of problems with cash flow underwriting. I think it can be magical for very short-term loans. Sure. Right? It might be more predictive. In fact, I've seen circumstances where it's more predictive than Bureau data if you're really trying sure. to bridge sure. 30 days worth of cash flow. Like what does your household look like today matters more than just about anything else. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's it's interesting, actually, because one of the things I was kind of noodling on as you were talking is just the idea that, and maybe this is a, a graphic I need to draw for the newsletter, but I do feel like some of those dimensions that you talked about at the very beginning are just vastly more important for certain types of lending products than they are for others, right? And, and I think the one we're sort of honing in on here that we spent a lot of time talking about is this sort of underlying stability question. And, you know, I mean, to your point, there are certain products where stability doesn't really matter that much at all. Like, I mean, I, I, and you'd be way more qualified to talk about this given your background at Capital One, but like, I always sort of chuckled a little bit about the ability to pay requirement that was added in by the Card Act in 2009 for credit cards. And not that, you know, again, like income information isn't, you know, useful, but there was this like ability to pay calculation debt to income functionally that was, required. And as with all sort of congressional requirements, it was more a reaction to something very specific that legislators were seeing that they didn't like, in this case, their grandchildren getting bombarded with credit card offers when they went to college, than it was like necessarily the right thing to do. But I remember that conversation with lenders at the time where they were like, okay, should we put this in for cards? If we do, what can we do that's compliant, but we don't really care about the data or what signal it feeds into our model? Can we use an estimation from the bureaus? So it's interesting how there will be certain areas where, as you're saying, kind of reminds me of like swimming in the ocean where it's like, oh, you're swimming and you're over a reef and you're looking down and there's all these like nice coral and fish. And then you get a little further out and you look down and you can't see the bottom and it's just this like abyss. To me, that's a little bit how lending across different product types is. We're like, when you get out in the deep water over mortgage, like you better know exactly what you're doing. Whereas closer to shore, there's a little bit more kind of flexibility in terms of the models you can use in the data. But I'll, I'll throw out a very controversial statement. And I actually do mean this. This is not meant to be hyperbolic, you know, in any way. So I, this is a statement I actually believe. But, you know, one definition of predatory lending is lending to someone when in advance, you know, they are not going to be able to pay you back, right? It, it's not about pricing. It really is about saying, look, for the use of proceeds this consumer or small business enterprise has, do they have the ability to pay us back? Am I making this loan in good conscience knowing that the counterparty has the ability to pay back? So I think ability to pay is actually very important. Now, the controversial part of this statement, if you actually believe that you know, predatory lending is lending to someone in advance that you know is going to fail. And the reason why that's predatory, because then pricing tends to go up, a bunch of other things happen, but there's a knockoff effect of lending to someone where in advance you know that they are not likely to succeed. I would claim that the largest predatory lending program in the history of humanity is the government student lending program. Totally. So in advance, if they were to actually look, you have all the correlations that you need. You have all of the data that you need to basically correlate the school, the major that people are taking, the cost of education and correlating it with outcomes because you have the tax files of all of these people that, you know, are taking on government-based loans. You've got their social security number on one side, 
guess what? When you uh, have to submit your taxes, you have social security on the other side. And I've spent time with the Department of Education and the IRS trying to get them to do the correlations because they're so obvious and no one wants to do it because you know what the outcome is going to be. That there are degrees for which there is no outcome, right? Except some exceptional luck. Right. That the cost of that education, if it were looked at as a traditional loan, you're not going to have the income in the future to support a lifestyle with this amount of debt. Totally. So the government knows in advance that many, many of the loans that they're making, the consumers are not going, the students are not going to be able to actually afford the education that they're taking on. But again, it is a social program. It is a subsidized program. The taxpayers are paying for this. But if you looked at it as a traditional lending program, it would be considered a predatory loan program. And what would happen if this were in the private markets? The regulation would come in to say you need to put an ability to pay check in place. Right. They would do it exactly the way they did it with credit cards, where they'd go, you have to check on. They did it with more. Mm -hmm. like after the global financial crisis, they said, look, this is not about liar loans, which is basically for people who don't know what that is, people who are basically stating their own income with no verification. Right. Right. So during the lead up to the 2008 crisis, a bunch of lenders and a bunch of brokers basically told people, fill in any income you want, you know, and even though this will be a uh, higher priced product, no one is going to check your income because we have an unverified income product you know, a self-stated income product, and you can put any number in there that you want, right? And guess what? That program blew up, you know, all of those loans blew up, (laughs) right? you know, and that's why they're called liar loans because they blew up because people were lying about their income to get approved. You know, in the same way, like cleaning up lending programs starts with getting back to the fundamentals of what lending is. So I know it's a controversial statement, but, you know, I actually do believe it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's been brought into sharp relief for me with the student loan pause, right? And the discussion about student loan forgiveness. And we won't make this into a whole policy discussion, but the lending angle to it that I do think is really interesting is we've had this great natural experiment that we've been able to run over the last three years when the student loans have been, federal student loans have been paused. And now we're getting to see the end part of that experiment, which is the unpause of those payments and the resumption of those payments. And you know, my friends at TransUnion uh, studied this exact question and went in and kind of crunched a lot of the data. And it's pretty interesting because to your point, what they found was there are different segments of people who have student loans. And some people who had student loans were graduating with a degree and going into a field where the amount of debt they had was manageable. A surprising number of those folks actually kept paying their student loans, even though there was a pause because they were in a position to do it and they knew it was the right thing to do. Some of them didn't, but they uh, anticipate that they won't have any problems kind of picking those payments back up. But there's a very large segment of the population that's going to have to make some very, very difficult choices once those now that those student loan repayments have resumed. And not only that, but in the absence of those payments, studying the behavior of those consumers is really fascinating because kind of to your point about like with debt to income, like how close are you driving to the edge and how able are you to handle that stress? When we took away that payment and we moved a segment of consumers further away from that edge, their scores went up, like their performance went up. They were actually better borrowers because of that. Think about cash flow underwriting. If your entire yeah. longitudinal data was during the student loan freeze, right? Like it's just <laughs> oh, an example man. that right. I think is, is yeah. really important. And I actually did write a thread on fixing 
the educational student lending program. I remember that. So if people are interested, take a look. But it's more king for a day type stuff about fixing this system and and some of the fundamentals that would have to change. No, that's a really good one. The last thing I wanted to ask you about on the subject of lending is, and this was actually, I think how we got onto the whole discussion of you coming on the podcast, but it's really relevant to everything we've been talking about, particularly this whole like driving on the edge and like dealing with financial stress. But I wrote about in my newsletter, credit insurance or payment insurance. So the idea essentially that we can insert insurance as a product within sort of the lending product itself to help protect borrowers in certain circumstances where they lose their job, they become disabled. There's something unexpected that impacts, hopefully temporarily, their ability to make payments. And uh, as I pointed out in the piece, and as I think you sort of uh, pointed out when you you wrote to me about uh, sort of your reaction to this piece, we've had versions of this for a long time, right? Like the idea of putting credit into or insurance into a credit environment is not new. We have mortgage protection insurance. We have a bunch of other types of that exact same product that sit in other verticals. I was talking to someone who works in the subprime auto space, and they were saying that they've done sort of insurance products that they sell as add-ons to customers kind of at the point of sale for years and years and years. I guess my takeaway from this is that there is, I think, still some room to innovate around the best way to deliver insurance within this context. But if you don't do it well, and and we've seen lots of examples of this, it can either be not very effective, it can potentially be predatory in terms of like adding on products to a consumer's plate that they might not need or that is sort of oversold. So what's your sort of reaction to the idea of like insurance as an add on to all of this? First of all, just like with lending, you need to understand what insurance is and what it's meant to accomplish. So going back to first principles. Yes. I mean, insurance is a transference of risk. I mean, it basically provides protection against a specific possible eventuality. Most insurance products are in the form of paying some sort of monthly premium or a lump sum up front. And the trade is you end up with protections in the future against that possible eventuality. Right. So... For those of us in the world who have a lot more stability and optionality and they have the resources to be able to handle, you know, these rare events that might occur in life, you don't necessarily have to transfer the risk and pay someone to take that risk, right? Right. So do I care if my refrigerator breaks down? Well, if I'm running on edge from a cash flow standpoint, like if the refrigerator goes under and I have to go replace it. If that would take me into technical insolvency because I don't have the free cash flow or I don't have the money sitting in an account to buy that new refrigerator, then having an extended warranty is a way of actually ensuring that you're going to have a refrigerator and you pay a little bit of this upfront and you pool the risk and you transfer it over to a professional entity and, you know, it handles the period of instability that you might not be able to handle on your own. Right. So when you think about lending, you have to ask yourself what you're protecting against. What are these eventualities? And when you think about mortgage protection insurance, which is really one of the more established categories, it really is meant to handle uh, gaps in employment. Right. The product does not exist for the self-employed, by the way. Right. So, you know, this is really meant for stable W-2 incomes and saying if you have job loss. And by the way, doesn't cover you if you were fired for cause or you quit. Not about being right. out of work. It's if you're laid off by your employer. 
And by the way, it only covers six months worth of payments in most cases. And some of them maybe will cover up to 12 months while you look for a new job. So you've got to think about what you're protecting against, you know, and you're paying for that. And it can be actually fairly expensive. It can be a couple percent added on to the cost of the loan. Sure. So the way the most successful insurance products work are they're actually mandated, right? Because if you want the best pool of risk, you need the customers who aren't going to need it yeah. as well as the customers who are going to need it. And it becomes a subsidized product, but it brings the costs way down, right? So if you think about auto insurance, as an example, there are enough people that would not have the money to repair their car or if there are damages to the other car or, you know, God forbid, someone gets injured and their lawsuits associated with it and a lot of medical expenses. Most people actually don't have the money to cover that. So for societal good, you know, auto insurance is mandated because there are plenty of people who will not get into accidents and are safe drivers. And, you know, that ends up bringing down the cost for a lot of other people. Now it's risk-based pricing. Some people pay more, some people pay less, but everyone has to get it, right? So there are classes of insurance products where by everyone getting it, it actually brings down the cost for everyone else, right? The people who actually are in need. And part of the problem with, you know, insurance products for lending is the consumer or the small business typically knows more about themselves than you do. Adverse selections. absolutely know when it is more likely that they are going to be laid off, right? And in fact, I've seen some information on forums around mortgage, you know, protection. You know, you only have a 30-day waiting period before it would kick in. So the question is, like, when do you actually buy this? And because of that, a lot of the mortgage protection insurance companies only allow you to bind it to your mortgage in the first two years of taking on the mortgage. After that, it's not optional. It's not even uh, available. Right. You can't do it. Yeah. You know, but you can imagine like it's hard to build an insurance product if they know more about themselves than you do. Totally. Which again goes back to that mandate of if our goal, again, societally, and a lot of this discussion has actually verged into like societal goals, which is fascinating. Again, lending is a social good, so it's it fits into that concept. But like you can see where mortgage protection insurance comes into play, again, if our goal as a society is home ownership, right? Because a, an outcome that you might want to protect against at a societal level is this person is totally able to handle home ownership, to cover a mortgage, We want them, all things being equal, to live in their own house and to have that asset and build wealth that way. And so we want to, and I'm just imagining a fictional world where I'm king for a day, we want to mandate mortgage protection insurance for everyone who has at least a W-2 type job or whatever the case may be. But like, we want to bring down the cost of everyone doing this such that we are subsidizing if you have unexpected job loss that's not the result of you getting fired or leaving your job we don't want you to lose your house, right? And we want to give you that six months of coverage. So the insurance thing is such a sort of social good and fits into like mandates and others. Because if you don't have that, and this kind of gets to your point, so much of what you have to do as an insurer to protect yourself is wrapping constraints around it so that you're like limiting your risk and you're protecting yourself. And that sort of eats into the overall goal that we have societally for embedding these insurance products. Well, I... Probably should have talked to you before I wrote that piece, but now at least I and hopefully the audience is a little bit more educated on that. Whenever I write about lending, call Frank. So this has been a great primer for me. I think everyone has uh, hopefully really enjoyed it. Before I let you go, though, I did tease at the beginning that we wanted to do some predictions. And 
I laughed when I had the thought in my head of reaching out to you about doing predictions because I know that you are probably one of the uh, people who despises doing predictions the way that we all do them in the industry, maybe more than anyone else I know. I think a lot of predictions that we see this time of year are of the variety of either, you know, embedded finance is going to be a really big deal, uh, which is like, okay, that's pretty obvious. We knew that. You know, open banking is going to define financial services in 2024. Well, yeah, no duh. Like, it's going to be implemented by the CFPB by the end of this year. The rules are going to be finalized. Of course, it's going to be a topic. Or they are predictions that sort of verge the other way of this is really going to get some people's attention or this is going to get people riled up on Twitter. I'm going to predict, you know, that all banks are going to disappear or we don't need banks anymore, whatever the the wild prediction might be. None of which is particularly useful either for people to consume or honestly, and you probably feel this way too, like why bother expending any mental energy like putting those predictions out into the world? Why spend any time thinking that way? And so I wanted to play a little anti-prediction game, if you will. So rather than doing it the way that you see most predictions in the industry, I was hoping to do it a little differently. I had a, a boss, my first boss, as a matter of fact, who used to say all the time that people tend to dramatically overestimate what they can accomplish in one year and dramatically underestimate what they can accomplish in 10 years. And his whole point was that thinking in longer time horizons allows you to be much more effective, both in terms of driving actual outcomes. But even if you're thinking about what might change or be different, longer timeframes tend to be more of a productive framing for having that conversation. So the assignment I gave you, Frank, was using a five to 10 year time horizon, please come to us with some predictions or some things, some thoughts about what might change in the future. So I will hand the floor over to you. I don't even have any predictions. I'm just going to react to yours. But please give us some of your longer term thoughts. Yeah, so I agree with you. I mean, I think predictions as they're done in the industry today are either no dot insights or they're polarizing. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, building startups is a seven to 10 year journey to make change. So if you're going to make change in an industry, it, it actually does take real time to accomplish important and big things. So I think the five to 10 year time frame is perfect. And, you know, I'll start this off by saying it shouldn't come as a surprise to your audience that quite a few of my predictions are going to be in the world of AI and how it's going to affect, yeah. you know, everything from jobs to the products that we consume going forward. Because in that time horizon, there's going to be a lot of change, and this is actually one of the most obvious drivers of it. The question is what the uh, net result is of AI. You know, the first one that I'll point to is actually the stock market. And my prediction over a five to 10 year time horizon is that the stock market actually needs and will probably see an entire overhaul in how it works. So talk about a big prediction, like you know, if I if I wanted to say this is going to happen in 2024, people would say, oh, my God, like, <laughs> you know, you think AI is taking over the world tomorrow. No, but right, right. over that time horizon, I think that we're going to realize what's happened, you know, to the stock market over the past few decades with AI accelerating the trend to a very dangerous point where it needs to be rethought. You know, so the reality is that there's a game that's being played in the public markets, you know, with stock ticker symbols. And prices sure. is kind of the pieces and the score keeping of the game, right? I mean, it's a very strange way of thinking about it. But if you look at the behaviors that are out there, the buying and selling of stocks is not as pure as it used to be. You know, the reality is that when you buy a stock, right? So if you buy shares of a company, 
you're buying ownership in the future cash flows of that business. Companies publicly report the performance once a quarter, but stocks are traded like every nanosecond, right? So if totally. you think about like this complete shift from reality where inf new information is really coming in less frequently than the stocks are actually trading, it's the definition. Yeah, by, by orders of magnitude. Yeah, yeah. It's the definition of a liquid market, but at the same time, you throw another trend on top of that where you collapse the cost of trading to zero. Yeah. And you create a game, right? And that game is about day trading and it's about figuring out if you can find short-term signals in highly liquid markets, et cetera, et cetera. And the more you see this for what it is, and by the way, you can see all the trends, like the duration of the typical hold of a stock has collapsed precipitously over the past few decades, right? And in fact, if you look at the typical trader today, I was looking at one trading platform we were thinking of investing in, happened to be in another country, but the average person using the platform was trading 30 times a month. Like, whoa, these yeah. are small dollar accounts and they're trading 30 times a month. Like, what are they actually accomplishing? Yeah. You know, volatility totally. is actually the feature, not the flaw. And, you know, they're really trying to just play this game. Well, who can play this game better than human beings? Well, silicon based learning machines. Right. So, yeah, it would be like saying I'm going to learn how to play chess and my only opponent is going to be the world's best AI trained chess player where you have zero. And by the way, we're going to make it speed chess where you have to move as fast as possible. That's right. So the chances of you winning that game are precisely zero, not like fractionally possible. Like it is precisely zero that you are going to win in that game. So in a world where the consumer is set up to actually fail, yeah, where AI bots are going to be trading all the time and, yeah. you know, figuring out how to extract whatever signal they can from the markets, the retail consumer is at a disadvantage. Now, making this worse, disinformation actually becomes part of the game. And who best to create disinformation in the markets that in a very predictable way will move the markets? Well, human beings might be okay at that game. AI will be exceptional at that game, right? Totally. And in fact, there's zero labor oh, yeah. costs you know, it has the ability to actually execute for you. So structurally, I think we have a problem in the making with how our stock markets work. Like they are going to be destabilized, you know, through AI, basically showcasing the game that we've been playing and playing poorly as, you know, carbon-based right. learning forms instead of the carbon-based learning machines instead of silicon-based learning machines. Like this is going to be something that needs a complete rethink because there are going to be damages and instability as well in a world where yeah. algorithmic trading is going to be run by who can write the best bots. Yeah, no, I love that prediction. I think, I mean, I couldn't agree more. This is a strange comparison, but I think the first thing that popped to my mind, just from a consumer perspective, but it sort of speaks to sort of structural problems with new technology. But I don't know if you've tried to buy like a ticket to an event or tried to buy really anything that's like in demand online Bots have completely destroyed that experience. They really have, right? And so, like, there is no... This dates me, but in high school, I used to camp out for tickets when they were on sale yes. for concerts. Yes, And yes. I knew yes. how Ticketmaster worked, and I knew how to ask the person behind the counter for, right. you know, these seats and use this code and figure out how to get me these seats. And then I would go and scalp the tickets, yes. you know, because I knew how to get the best tickets yeah. by waiting overnight. So... I'd laugh at what's happening online because the bots do that much better than I ever did. And I had to camp out in parking lots overnight 
in order to wait in line <laughs> to try to get tickets. Totally, totally. And it speaks to exactly the same phenomenon, which is like from a stock trading perspective, if I have to call my broker and I have to like pay a fee every time they're going to do it and it's a whole big manual process, like the incentives are just not there for everyone to play this game in a casual, low stakes environment. Like you have to be committed to doing it. And it just sort of has a natural constraining effect, which keeps the system from breaking. But I've absolutely noticed like a very sort of early prototype version of the same problem playing out in the world of tickets or buying like shit, buying a PlayStation 5 for years was like impossible because bots were just snatching all of them up. And it really made me wonder like, what systems do we have to build to sell things online that are in high demand. I think we're going to need to completely rethink that infrastructure. And like Ticketmaster, I went to Taylor Swift, which was a wild experience. I went to uh, an Eras Tour concert. And I mean, just getting the ticket, I think by the time we actually got one that was verified and I got to the final screen where I was paying all the extra fees, like I think I blacked out. I don't even remember how much I paid. Like that was like, it was an extreme, extreme process. Like that's not fundamentally sustainable. And I think applying that thinking to a much larger, more liquid, constantly on game that's being played, which to your point is exactly what the stock market has become. Like it doesn't take a whole lot of projecting out to see that getting broken. We already have seen stresses put on it, right? I mean, like I'm looking forward to being able to see the movie that's coming out about the whole GameStop meme stock phenomenon. But that was like one of those like kind of fever, almost breaking kind of moments where you kind of started to see some of the cracks pop up. Like that's going to be a thing that happens more. It's hard because you know, while that was happening, I projected myself into being the CEO of one of those companies that was being traded in the public market yeah. and started to think like, yeah. what would I have done if I were the CEO of games while that was happening? <laughs> the massive right. game was right. being played with my ticker symbol in the middle. Yes. And the price of it being the output about whether you're winning or losing the game. Totally. Right. Like it makes it impossible to actually manage a public company. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. I just want to hit that point really fast. That's the other half of this that's probably going to be a big conversation five, 10 years from now, whenever this happens is this affects the way companies behave, right? And like, to me, that's such a, I mean, I obviously want to protect retail traders and like there's a whole sort of consumer protection angle to this. But the bigger sort of systemic issue to me is I can't have companies getting involved in this game more than they already have been. Like the idea that it's going to warp how companies behave and like value creation for the economy. Like that's the scary thought to me. Very, very hard. That's really great. Okay, give me, give us your next one. The next one is that financial institutions are going to completely refactor their cost structures, right? This is another no-duh insight that we will start to see play out a little bit in the next year, but over the next five years and 10 years, it's going to have a massive effect. And I, I don't think people appreciate like how big the financial service and insurance industries are. But in the U.S. alone, I know the figures for the U.S. I don't know them globally, but you could basically double the U.S. and you'll probably end up with the global numbers. But in the U.S., 6.7 million Americans are employed by the financial services and insurance industries. Like it's a, a pretty big industry. Average salary, about $72,000. It means that when you multiply these together, there's almost half a trillion dollars worth of expense just sitting in people, right? And if you think about them as carbon-based learning machines, and we start to think about the cost of silicon-based learning machines, there's going to be a complete refactoring of how work is being done. You know, there are over 400,000 tellers. There are over 400,000 financial service sales agents. There's about the same number of insurance sales agents, about the same number of loan officers, accountants, auditors. Like each of these 
pieces of the financial service profession, you know, have close to half a million people in jobs where it doesn't take a lot of insight to say that the job is going to be very different when having AI co-pilots or potentially being completely replaced by AI agents. You know, so if you actually ask yourself, like, how many of these jobs will exist in their current form or fashion 10 years from now? And if you say that, you know, running the carbon-based learning machine, the person, right, if you think about the person doing work as basically executing code, it's a code of how people work, it's costing 60 cents a minute on average for a lot of these jobs. And if you could replace them with silicon-based learning machines, it's going to cost fractions of a penny to get to the answer not just per minute. So there's going to have to be a reckoning here. And it's not just in the financial services industry. Like this is a trend that's going to, you know, cross lots of industries. I, you know, the piece I wrote on AI recently talks a bit about carbon-based learning machines versus silicon-based learning machines. And I think that this is going to be profound because a lot of the underpinnings of how financial services work will be replaced once we have the right data sets and the right technology and the right regulation around it. But given a five to 10 year horizon, not a one year horizon, you're going to really attack this half a trillion dollar cost structure, you know, of the uh, the financial services industry and eviscerate it. That's a really interesting one. And it, again, sort of drawing a parallel, we've seen a, a small version of this play out already with sort of early generations of B2B and B2C fintech companies, right, uh, competing with banks, because the cost structure, just in terms of like operationally, how we're going to approach things like customer service, underwriting, back office tasks, the fact that we're not going to have branches, like we've seen this, an early version of the story play out where there's one cost structure going up against a very different cost structure. And I guess a question I would bounce back to you would be, what are some of your learnings from that early sort of a clash of cost structures and sort of what came out of it? Like, did customers benefit from lower costs? Were things made more accessible? Was there sort of more value accruing to different parts of the ecosystem? Like, what can we expect when this clash happens at a much greater level? So it's a good question. I mean, the best analog to look at is a company that, you know, we got involved with at its very earliest stages. I mean, at the formation stage, we spend time with uh, David Velez at Newbank. I knew you were going to say Newbank. It's a perfect, it's a perfect example. Yeah, go for it. Right. Newbank is a digital challenger bank in Brazil. It is now one of the largest banks in Brazil. It's now competing with the incumbents. It's a forty billion dollar plus market cap company. You know, at this yep. point, bringing in billions of dollars of revenue and profitable. Like it's a force. I think it's yeah. one in two consumers in Brazil are using some product of Newbank. So I mean, it's a, it's a monster, and. It built its entire infrastructure and it is a digital only infrastructure, not a digital first, not a digital advantaged, like it is a digital only infrastructure. So it is amazing what could happen, you know, with a digital only infrastructure, creating the products and services that are precisely the ones that are wanted by your customer base. And, you know, the problem I, I wrote about this years ago in a piece called the Copernican Revolution in Banking. I know it well. You know, that basically talks about how banks, the, the traditional bank is a 50 by 50 box on a street corner. That's a big advertisement for people to come in to show that they actually exist. And they distribute on average 350 products that are very generic. And, you know, if you look at having 350 generic products and the infrastructure associated with them and the 
costs when the typical customer that you serve, when they walk into the bank, they probably only want somewhere between three and six of your products. So you're, you know, basically having the entire cost structure of both the physical infrastructure as well as keeping up products that very few parts or segments of your customer base actually care about, right? So it's a very inefficient way of running the machine. And if you can take cost out of the system, it, it means a lot of things. I mean, it means you can, yeah. you know, uh, offer better products, you can have better experiences, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're going to see some change. If you were to look at the U.S. at the top 20 banks, yeah, how many of them are digital only infrastructure companies? Zero, right? That, that will not be true. Like here's a new prediction, like 10 years from now, that will not be true. There will be a digital only, you know, banking institution that uh, cracks into the top 20. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that prediction. And I think to put a fine point on it, you know, I mean, the top 20 banks, their model, they got really good at doing universal banking, which is that large store with these massive number of products that are very generic. And it's not, I mean, it reminds me a lot of the revolution we've been going through with media and newspapers and all these things that the internet affects. Like when you change one of those fundamental assumptions, which is, oh, now it's the cost to supply this thing, the cost to build products and maintain products goes from being this massive thing where unless you have a huge organization, and you have the resources to do it, you can't play the same game, right? Like there are no digital banks in the US that can play the game that Chase plays right now. But when the costs necessary to cover the waterfront and to serve all those different segments of customers, when it goes down, the game completely changes and suddenly Chase's advantage in employing however many employees they have, 220,000, whatever it is, that advantage goes away and in fact becomes a weight around their neck. So I think that is a really interesting thread to pull on. Yeah, I mean, the next prediction that I'll make kind of dovetails with that. Yeah, yeah. Then it's the discovery will be perfect, right? So imagine having this infrastructure where what you rely on is that people are going to walk into those 50 by 50 boxes and because they know you're going to offer them a solution, they will take that solution. Not necessarily the best solution, but they'll take the solution because it's the one their local bank offers or their credit union offers. And in a world of perfect discovery where people have AI agents actually working for them, you know, financial institutions that rely on customer inertia or incomplete research to sell their products or retain their customers, that's going to change. And, you know, the question that I always ask, and it's, it's not, uh, it doesn't tell you whether you will succeed, but I find that it is a good litmus test for whether you deserve the right to succeed, you know, in a market. I ask companies all the time, if a rational consumer were faced with perfect information, would they pick your product? And if the answer is no, like it's going to be hard to build that business or maintain that business in a world where discovery is perfect. Yeah. So that's something that I think is only a few years away, but it's that's a great one because the underpinning of that from a financial services context is so much, <laughs> a startling amount, a frightening amount of how much the financial industry sort of like the infrastructure it rests on is customers making less than optimal decisions with not great information, right? And like the most obvious example of that would be deposit betas being relatively low even as rates go up, right? And so much of you know, uh, yeah, let's talk about deposits for a second. So pull, pull on that. Yeah. I, I spent time with a regional bank, a large regional bank. Yeah. And I was talking to one of their top few executives that was in charge of their consumer business. Right. And in a casual conversation, they were telling me how excited they were that they had 
all of these customers that had money trapped in savings, like not checking accounts, but in savings accounts that had an average of 0.02% interest rate. Right. Why are you proud of the fact that you have billions of dollars that consumers are leaving with you in a savings account earning 0.002%? Like, isn't your job to help your customize value, right? Make money. And I said, if a new customer came in today, are you offering them that 0.02% rate? They're like, oh no, new customers get better rates than that. And I'm like, wait a minute. So you're supposed to be a fiduciary. Yep. And you're happy to just let your customers stay ignorant. Totally. About a better offer that's out there for a newer customer coming in. You know that they could go to a competitor and get a better offer than you have. Like yep. how good of a job are you at being a fiduciary? And he yep. actually did not like that line of uh, questioning. I wouldn't think, <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> but for most consumers, if you ask them, they think the bank right. is supposed to be the fiduciary watching out for them. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I mean, that's and I think, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with that. I had an experience with a top five bank recently where I had sort of sleepy, lazy money in a savings account that I just, you know, I mean, we're all busy. We don't pay attention to these things. We're not always optimizing. We're not silicon based learning machines, right? We have uh, things that are distracting us. I have three kids at home that suck up literally all of my extra time. And so eventually, though, like rates were getting to the point where I was like, you know, I'm pretty sure they can't be paying me as much as I could be going out in the market. So I went to check and like, and I, I'm a financial services guy. Like I work in this industry and my jaw hit the floor. I was like, oh my God. And then I did exactly what you said. I went and looked at what their rates were that they were offering for new customers and they're right up competitive with everyone else. And it, it kind of goes to your kind of core point around discovery. Like what's the implication of perfect discovery? To me, the core implication of it is you are now going to have to be entirely focused on earning your customer's business every day, not benefiting from arbitrage that hurts your customer. And that's like a huge, huge shift for every industry, but financial services might be one of the biggest. It's pretty profound. I don't think people yeah. understand with the products, the average product suite that a bank has yeah, and the amount of business that they would not command yeah, if it were a perfect bake-off. I could not agree more. Well, and the problem, and I think this is something that might even extend into sort of discussions at a regulatory level with prudential bank regulators is so much of like banking stability and like the jobs we ask banks to do and how we evaluate how well they're doing them functions a little bit on this arbitrage, right? I mean, like we think of Chase as being a really stable bank because they have this really stable base of low cost deposits. If that's not true, the entire job that they do and the way we think about them as a stable pillar of the financial industry, that changes too. So, I mean, I whenever I talk about open banking or I talk about sort of AI agents and the impact it has on discovery, I always have in the back of my head someone from like the FDIC listening and going like, oh my God, you know, like that would be a massive, massive change. Kind of harkens back to your stock market prediction. Like there, there will be reverberations of that that go well beyond the private market. So I'll make one more prediction, and this one will be outside of the realm of AI. It's the perfect one to end on then. Okay, go. And it's in the world of money movement. So the concept that banks are running on their own ledgers and need an intra-bank settlement process to move money from one ledger to another is going to be solved. People who aren't really familiar with how all of this works, like it is so much friction in the system today with the thousands of banks that are in the US and the thousands of banks that are internationally and all of the money that's actually being moved from bank to bank, you know, from currency to currency as well. Like, yeah, it is massive friction. 
so the concept that there will be a set of rails that have good money on it at all times without the need for currency conversion or an intrabank settlement process in the middle, I think that's going to be the norm. And if you think about what this is, it's basically just another definition for stable coins. Right. Right. So stable coins with blockchain infrastructure, you know, underpinning it, it really is the solution, you know, to taking the friction out of all of this money movement that's happening between agencies. And what will be interesting is once stable coins become the currency powering these rails, even though you're still going to have friction in the on and off ramps, uh, a lot of businesses and a lot of people might infrequently off ramp the stable coins because once people know that it's the currency of the rails, they can keep it in the stable coins and it will have value and people can trade directly the stable coins that are sitting in the middle of the process. Right. So I think you're going to see a lot more of various currencies and it'll probably be USD backed stable coins. I think there is just one announced in Europe with the French bank, you know, basically talking about creating a Euro denominated stable coin. Like, I think these are going to become much more common and in fact, the norm for any cross-border trade. And I think there's going to be a lot of currency locked, you know, in stable coins because it reduces the friction of just moving money around the globe. Yeah. Yeah. I I actually think that's going to become the norm. And, you know, if you don't have a stable coin solution and you're in the world of money movement, I think you're going to miss the boat. That's a great one. I mean, I, I know you went on a whole journey (laughs) in 2021 and 2022, sort of diving into the world of crypto and everything relating to that and trying to sort of parse it from a first principles perspective. And it was so useful to be able to follow you on Twitter while you were doing that, because I was trying to do a, a less studious version of that at the same time. But my observation around all of this has been that the more that the mania and the speculation recedes from this space, the more I, it's like the tide rolling out and you're like walking along and looking at like seashells, you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I see so many interesting use cases that are sort of quietly still being worked on that have nothing to do with sort of the speculative value of this stuff. And, you know, stable coins sit right at the middle of a lot of that. And it's really like, it's crypto stripped of all the speculation. And so like what you're left with is this mechanism that allows for certain things that do strip a lot of the costs out. I remember I saw... An announcement. I can't remember which stable or which uh, central banks were working on this, but there was a group of central banks and they were doing a kind of a pilot program. And what they were working on was, can we embed the compliance requirements that we have on a country by country basis into a stable coin framework that makes it much, much easier and less friction filled to move money from one country to another? Because to your point, in a lot of cases, it's not the actual communication it's all of the other things that get wrapped around money movement that just make it incredibly complex. And that's why you have, have to have all these intermediaries. If you want to deep dive into this, look up like what correspondent banking is and just go down the rabbit hole. But like when I saw that, I mean, like central banks are not the most innovative, cutting edge, like, you know, we're going to the moon. Like that's not how they think. And so they're yeah, sort of quiet, this is real continued thing. obsession. It is. It absolutely is. Like central banks love stable coins and are continuing to see a lot of value in them. And so now I don't think that's an out of the box prediction at all. I wouldn't be surprised if that's more of a five year thing than a 10 year thing. Like, do you think we're getting inching closer to that? Yeah, I think we are because besides the interoperability, you know, where again, think of all these thousands of ledgers around the world and just making totally. sure that it is good money moving around. Like it's crazy. Yeah. I think there are that yeah. many ledgers in the world. 
But besides that, stable coins have the value of allowing people in one country to have access to another country's currency right. and use it as a savings mechanism. Right. So if you're in Nigeria and you watch what happened to the Naira over the past handful of years, especially what happened to this happened this year, like you might want access to a very different currency for the money that you're saving in order to combat against, you know, the intricacies of what's happening within your country around monetary policy. Now, that's a reason why some governments might not like, you know, stable coins because mm-hmm. they'll have a bit less control. Mm-hmm. But I think there are going to be multiple reasons and use cases for stable coins that when you add them up together, you know, it becomes a very valuable form fashion of currency. Yeah. You know, that people can trade and trade for very rational reasons. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I will give credit to Simon Taylor for shaping my thinking on stable coins because uh, I have sort of an allergic reaction to a lot of crypto stuff just generally. But one of the things he always talked about that I think is fits exactly into what you're saying is it's hard sometimes when you don't live in one of those countries to understand the value of something like that. And so it can be difficult to put yourself in those shoes. But I totally agree. And I think that's a great one to end on. Frank, thank you so much for um, this extra long session of letting us pick your brain. I learned a ton and uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.